Welcome everyone to Sunday service at Ananda Village. It's a joy to be here today. A special welcome to those who are here um, freeing yourself from stress and on personal retreat. That was the name of one of our programs. It's a good one. And there's also a private retreat um, with, a, I think it's a society or Hmong Women's Heritage Society. We're at Gaia House this week, so welcome to the Hmong women who are joining us. I am Tiagi Lisa Powers, and this is Tiagi Peter, and it's a joy to be here. So this week's reading, Intuition is Simple, the Intellect is Complex, by Swami Kriyananda from Rays of the One Light. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10, we read a passage that Yogananda often quoted. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not, for such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. It has often been noted that a critical attitude tends to paralyze creativity. Good critics, for example, seldom produce works of creative genius, creative genius, though their creations may be intellectually clever. The intellect separates, it analyzes, then puts things together again piece by piece. Intellect lacks intuition's flow, which descends smoothly like a river from the superconscious. Paramhansa Yogananda described intuition as the soul's power of knowing God. To receive the kingdom of God, Jesus was saying, one must do so with the openness and trust of a little child. Intellectuals may object to this statement, saying, but there must also be discrimination. You wouldn't want a person to be so open-minded that his brains fall out. The truth is, however, that the intellect can be fooled, even when it does its best to discriminate wisely. Only intuition is capable of penetrating to the heart of a matter and knowing truth from falsehood. It was the clear understanding of a child, not the elaborately persuaded intellects of his elders, that enabled the child in Hans Christian Andersen's story to cry out in surprise, why isn't the emperor wearing any clothes? Therefore, it was that Sri Krishna said in the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, to you who are free from the carping spirit, I shall now reveal wisdom sublime. Grasping it with your mind and perceiving it by intuitive realization, you shall escape the evils of delusion. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. This reading is from Whispers from Eternity. This is Paramhansa Yogananda's book of mystical poems and prayer demands. This one is, Rock Me in the Cradle of All Space. 
rocked in the cradle of the blue-colored past, bright-colored present, and dim gray-colored future, I, thy child of eternity, am restless. I strained ineffectually my feet of my own power, and at last I succeeded in jumping out from duality's cradle of delusion. Thou hast caught me in thy infinite arms and rocked me in all space. I am thy babe of eternity, safe now in the cradle of thy omnipresent bosom. One of my friends and I like to share humorous things we find on the internet or come across. And uh, once, not long ago, um, I received an email from him that had a little uh, video clip attached to it, and it was just titled, Perfect Dad. And I thought, well, this is interesting. So I opened it up, and here was this young guy. He looked like he was probably in his early 30s and clearly had his young daughter, who was about, a toddler was about three, and was holding in his lap uh, a green plastic laundry basket. Actually looked just like the one I use at home. And the little daughter was standing at the front of it, kind of holding onto the front edge, and in front of them was a big video screen. And when the video came to life, it turned out it was one of these very realistic point of view roller coaster rides where someone had actually taken a video camera, put it on the front of a roller coaster, and gone through the roller coaster. And what this dad did, it was terrific. He would hold the little basket, and they would start down the hill, and he'd tilt the basket forward and rattle it a little bit. And of course, the kid just loved it. and was just howling with laughter through the whole thing. And they'd go around a corner, he'd tilt it, go around the corner the other way, around the other way. And she'd almost fall out, and he'd say, don't worry, Daddy's got you, and he'd push her back in. And every once in a while, he'd give it a good thump on the bottom with his knee, and she'd fly up a little bit and have to grab on extra hard. And I remember thinking at the end of this, um, number one, what a great dad. That's a very creative thing to do with your daughter. I mean, clear she just totally enjoyed it. And here he was creating this incredibly fearless child by giving this delightful, uh, really risk-free experience. But I was also thinking about it that um, probably the first thing that happened when it ended was she immediately turned around and said, Daddy, again! <laughs> and this was clearly about the hundredth time they'd done this. One thing I caught myself thinking about afterwards is this is very much like our own lives. And in fact, here we are. We have our souls poured into this sort of rickety body, kind of the equivalent of this uh, green plastic uh, laundry basket. And we spend a few dozen decades, uh, 70 years or so, plying around and fortunately for us, right behind us is the guru. There's master behind us, and he's the one who's whispering encouragement to us and making sure at particular times we get an extra good knock so that we really understand the point. 
and also to make sure that we understand that we're really safe the whole time we go through this and that no matter how stressful things appear outside of us, no matter how frightening things appear outside of us, no matter how wonderful things appear, that he is always there with us, experiencing this with us, and guiding us, protecting us. I remember back in the um, late 1980s, I had a chance to go to Assisi, Italy, where we had a community which had just really uh, begun to uh, have more buildings and was, had a real presence there. And this was kind of a, my first opportunity to go over. And in fact, um, I hadn't really had a break from uh, my area of service. I was working as a, as a physician at our clinic here. This was going to be my first real break in about five years. And so I actually was able to arrange a three-week break. Swami Kriyananda was over there. He was doing some writing and working on a book. And he said, well, if you come over, you can kind of help me with some of my health, health stuff, which I'd appreciate. So um, when I got there, it turned out things were much more rustic and simple than I was expecting. The building I was staying in was about a quarter of a mile away from everything else. Swami was fortunately in the uh, same building with us, but it was uh, amazingly cold for the fall. Totally unexpected for me. I hadn't really been prepared for that. Um, and the other thing that began happening was um, I had left very good instructions and arranged everything with uh, uh, clinic staff before I left what to do for different kinds of emergencies and if things came up with the finances, things like that. And within a day of arriving, I got a message under my door on a little scrap of paper that someone had written down, um, call the clinic immediately, financial emergency. <laughs> so I called and a very odd thing had happened. Our accountancy person, when they had gone to the bank, they'd done a number of things that needed to be done, but they had also thought they had dropped our, our deposit for the week, which was going to cover the payroll, which was coming up. And we did not have extra money in our account. It was pretty much that deposit was going to cover the payroll. So um, somehow the deposit vanished and never showed up in our account. And she was sure she no longer had the envelope that it was in and was also sure that she'd been to the bank because she'd done some other things and actually had them. And she could have sworn she'd actually turned our deposit in as well. So this started happening at the same time, a couple staff members who'd been squabbling, both began insisting if we didn't fire the other one, they would quit. <laughs> so, and you have to understand, at this point in Italy, it's not like it's now where everyone has a cell phone you can just call. The only telephone was in a building a quarter of a mile away from where I was staying. And so I would get these notes under my door, you know, usually <laughs> late at night and early in the morning because we were exactly eight hours out of phase with Italy. So the stuff would come in late at night or early in the morning and I'd get a little message, please call emergency staff quitting. So. <laughs> This had gone on for about four days, and finally I just decided, you know, 
I'm going to have to think about just going back and solving this. I'm not going to be able to stay. And I remember I sat down with some of my friends, and I laid out for them very rationally why I think I just needed to drop everything and just get on a plane and go back. And I explained everything to them and included some things like, well, and I'm really jet lagged now and I'm not enjoying it because I'm jet lagged and I don't know, the food's a little odd for me and uh, I'm really cold. And I kind of finished my whole tale of woe and how I, with my mental ratiocination, had gone through all the reasons why, yes, I should just go home and deal with this. Um, all of a sudden, outside my window, I heard someone call my name. And I didn't expect anybody else to be saying anything to me. Most people there just spoke Italian. And so I went, I was on the second floor, and the friends I was with heard this too, and they said, yeah, actually, somebody just called you. So I kind of walked out onto this little wrought iron balcony that was there, and there was Swami Kriyananda standing there next to his car with a little beret on his head, all dressed up in a nice little travel outfit, and he said, Peter, let's go to Assisi. Place we were staying was about 45 minutes outside of CC, so I actually hadn't even been into town since I'd arrived. And I said, "Great!" So we went in, and actually, the place we went was to the basilica, one of the basilicas in Assisi, um, Santa Maria, Maria degli Angeli, and it was a magical experience. Within this basilica, there's actually a tiny little, very ancient church called the Portiuncola. Portiuncola. And Portiuncola just means little portion in Italian. So it's this tiny little chapel, only seats about 20 people, inside this giant church. It's just kind of right in the middle. So when you walk in, you see this little tiny old chapel. This was a chapel that was given by the Benedictine monks to St. Francis during his lifetime and actually was one of the focal points of his work. So there I am with Swami and we actually went in and sat inside this little chapel. The chairs in there were actually built into the wall and they're kind of about the size that someone about eight years old would fit in very comfortably. So someone of more generous proportions, uh, you sort of feel like you're sandwiched into this little spot and Swami was right in front of me, up against the wall, too. And uh, we meditated there for about an hour. And I realized uh, at the end of it that I'd kind of forgotten about what was happening with all this stuff at the clinic. In fact, I'd forgotten to mention to Swami while we were driving to town that maybe I would have to go back. Um, so I kind of put it out of my mind for the moment. And uh, Swami actually commented at the end of it, he said, isn't it remarkable you can just feel the joy of St. Francis just seeping out of the floor, out of the walls. Joy, humility, it's all just here in this sense of surrender and devotion. And we finished our afternoon, went, had a little coffee, drove back to Assisi, and um, as I was walking up to my room, I began thinking, huh, what am I going to do about this problem? And um, there was a note in front of my door, and it was like, oh, 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 oh not another one. And I picked it up and said, don't come back. Found the deposit. Staff is fine. 
Isn't that interesting? You know, it's so curious how life will unfold itself. And in fact, I remember that, that point in my life so clearly because it was such a classic example. If I just tried to make a decision based on intellectual criteria, I would have ended up doing the wrong thing. In fact, I would have to say the remainder of that trip was really a high point of my, my whole life. I ended up having a week-long seclusion by myself uh, that was just magical. And I remember when I came home from that, I felt full of joy and energy and the healthiest I had felt in years, and it lasted for months at that level was really a remarkable experience. And yet, if I'd been left to my own devices, I probably would have gone home. Swami would often say, remember, a victorious life is often one that is filled with stress. He wasn't one who ever counseled avoiding stress. He would say, become bigger than your challenges, become bigger than your problems and let God guide your life and you'll be able to navigate this world, navigate these impediments and pitfalls and do so in a way that promotes our spiritual growth. One thing that uh, Patricia and I have gotten into, very recently we had been reading uh, Swami's edition of Master's uh, interpretation of the Bhagavad Gita. And so every night we would read uh, a section or two. And we were both very struck, about, struck by the fact that this whole story that unfolds in the Bhagavad Gita is one that's actually very personal and actually relatable to us as devotees. Essentially what's occurring is that um, this devotee Arjuna who is the leader of his forces, actually the main general in this battle that occurs at the battlefield of Kurukshetra. This is actually a real historical battle, but what Yogananda did was do the interpretation in a way that explained it. The Gita is really about the inner battle that we all go through, and Kurukshetra, in fact, is our own internal battlefield. And a large part of the action that happens during the unfoldment of the, the Bhagavad Gita is that Krishna, who is Arjuna's guru, is acting as his charioteer and advisor and would transport him around the battlefield and they would have experiences and conversations and that's what's being recorded. And it's very interesting because many of the things that Arjuna expresses and experiences sound just like the things we go through in our everyday life. At one point, he's confronted with a situation and he turns to Krishna and says, I can't do this. I think what I'm doing is unethical or I think what I'm doing may not be moral. At another time, he just kind of gets fed up with the whole dilemma he's in and actually sits down and refuses to do anything. And I thought, how much like, this is just like we are. <laughs> and so there's some, real, there's some real lessons to learn 
to learn from this. And one thing Patricia and I have gotten into is if we're having a particularly hard day at our medical clinic where, you know, we've started at 8.15 in the morning and now it's 6.15 at night and we still have one more patient to see and it just seems, it often happens that our very last patient of the day is the sickest and most uncomfortable and has been delayed the longest before we get to see them um, and is often upset by that. And a game we will play with each other is, um, Patricia, for example, would come into my office and say, okay, Peter, Krishna has pulled your chariot on the battlefield up to this point right now. What are you gonna do? <laughs> and of course, it always catches me by surprise, even though we've done this a dozen times. Um, and there we are. There we are as Arjuna. There we are on the battlefield of life, on Kurukshetra. How are we going to respond? Patient is still there. It's not going to change the circumstance at all. But can I change my attitude? Can I change how I'm responding to this so it's no longer with a sense of this is a stressful situation. It's this is exactly what I should be doing. This wouldn't be happening. God has created this perfect circumstance for my education, and it's showtime. It's time to go through this, but do it with a sense of joy, and do it with a sense of offering, and doing it with a sense that, in the end, this really isn't my power anyway. Anything that I am able to share or transmit is really God's power through me, is really the guru channel through me. I remember, <laughs> Not long after that trip to Assisi, probably about a year later, I was uh, here at Ananda. Swami was uh, back in Assisi again and became rather ill with a heart rhythm disturbance and was feeling quite unwell with it. Had nearly passed out a few times and we did not have a cardiologist there. Wasn't really clear what was happening with him. And so we finally all decided probably the safest thing to do would be for me to fly over to Assisi, pick him up, take him on the plane, bring him back, and we could have him seen uh, here in the Bay Area in California. And so this was a very last minute decision. I mean, literally, we kind of decided this at 5 p.m. in the afternoon, and at 4 a.m. in the morning, I was driving to San Francisco. Um, from here at Ananda, San Francisco is about four hours away, to get on a plane to Rome, Italy, so I could go to Assisi and get him. So flew to Rome, drove up to Assisi, which was three or four hours from Rome, um, and I had about four or five hours to help Swami with his health care. We got him feeling a little better. I slept for about two or three hours. We got back in the car, drove back to the Rome airport, got on a plane, got Swami well-situated in first class. He was already starting to feel better with some of the medication we'd given him. And I went back and got ready to do the plane flight with him. And I remember thinking, you know, I set my little uh, alarm that I had with me so I could go check on him every hour just to make sure he was doing well on this eight-hour flight. And it just so happened that I got put in the row behind the screaming babies. So I, I had a serenade all the way home. Those poor kids, <laughs> they're poor parents, poor me. Uh, <laughs> so 
so by the time we'd gotten back, it had been like two, you know, two days, and I'd had like four hours of sleep. And really, all I had to do to fall asleep was to stop moving, and I would <laughs> go to sleep. And I remember when we got off the plane, remember thinking to myself, I'm really glad I have my passport with me because if I forget my name, I can open it and find it. So we collected our, our belongings and uh, at that time at the airport, this is before they had little video monitors, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know if someone was coming off the plane until they actually emerged from the, the exit that came out into the main waiting area. So everyone uh, from Ananda who was there, many people knew that Swami had not been feeling well, and so there was probably about 50 people gathered there to kind of greet him back, make sure he was okay. Um, and I was carrying all our stuff and, you know, had Swami on one arm and he had his cane with him, and he was actually feeling very frisky by that point. He was really feeling recovered. And uh, so we started coming down the aisle and someone said, oh look, there's Swami, and a cheer went up. And one of my friends who has this great sense of humor said, oh and look, he's carrying Peter. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's such a funny thing. I, I remember after, and I laughed at it too, I thought it was actually pretty appropriate. Um, I thought the number of times in my life where I had felt that Swami had helped me at a very critical juncture where I was about to make really a very poor decision. And he would often have just the right thing to say or would make a suggestion on how I could change things that somehow it would actually work out. And when I look back at my life, it's probably those three or four decisions, if I had gone in a different direction, I probably wouldn't be standing here now. I might have gone off and done something else. It's really shocking to think that those things could happen and derail us, but at the same time, have the good fortune to have others that can help us stay in tune and stay on, on target. You know, I think probably the most helpful attitude to have as a devotee is one of loving surrender. This idea that we're here, we're God's child, we're like the little infant, the little toddler in the rickety little laundry basket getting bounced and jostled around, but the whole time dad's there telling us everything is fine, have fun, this is for your education, this is for your enjoyment, and I've got everything else. You don't have to worry. So as we go through our lives, feeling that sense that God enfolds us, God cradles us, God care, cares for us, and knows us to our core, and loves us for everything we are and everything we shall become. For all of us, when we meditate, meditate deeply. Try to, try to meditate on a regular basis. If you're someone who is new to meditation, this is a chance to commune with God, to begin to get to know God in a way that's meaningful. I know when I first came on the spiritual path, people would say, oh, well, you can meditate to know God. I'll be honest with you. I would go, what does that even mean? I was just happy to feel peaceful. I was happy to feel healthier, more energetic, calmer, all these positive things, more joyful. And finally, I began to feel that whisper 
in the back of my mind, in my heart, of the presence of God beginning to guide me, the presence of the guru beginning to help me along the spiritual path and be there as this safety net, as this protector. We literally have uh, a protecting angel with us all the time. There's the guru looking out for us, guiding us, caring for us, and only wants for us our God realization. God is our father, our mother too. God is our dearest treasure. God's ever near the one friend who loves us without any measure. Both his dreams our love was made. Only from him is love repaid. Let us in gladness so